2: Hello and welcome to Changing Politics, the podcast where we give you small, achievable things to do that improve the world. I'm Gronje Maguire, the brain of Nye Bevan in the body that's Nye Heaven, if you know what I mean.
3: I don't. And I'm (laughs) Marie Le the triple threat. I can speak French, English, and a third language I call Franglish. So how have you made the world a better place this week then, Gronje? I've helped the gig economy by not deleting Uber.
2: Okay... I'll explain in the second half of the show, but first, the week's news. Well, the big news, of course, that everybody is talking about is Joe Johnson has resigned from government in protest against Brexit. And now, obviously, everybody is calling him a hero. Yes, a hero who has voted with the government on every bit of Brexit legislation, not to mention the years of austerity, universal credit and benefit cuts over the past eight years to give for Ms. Jew, though, he is probably the most left wing member of the Johnson family, but that's a bit like calling somebody the most chilled out and relaxed Mitford sister.
3: I'm going to, I'm sorry, I feel like I am going to be the very annoying, like, Johnson specialist here. <laughs> so I'm going to actually pinch my nose, but actually, I think you'll find that Leo Johnson and Rachel Johnson are slightly more left wing than Joe Johnson.
2: <laughs> you say that, but I saw an episode of The Last Leg where Rachel Johnson, you know, what was that, that, um, where all the men were really sleazy over the, the girls. Oh, was it the President Club? The, the President's Club. I saw an episode of The Last Leg where Rachel Johnson seemed seemed quite drunk and really defended the President's Club and sort of said, "Ah, oh, well, basically her defence was, if you wear slushy clothes to work, what do you expect?
3: That is not ideal. That is an ideal. Mm-hmm. But I'll um, say, actually, the interesting thing about Joe Johnson and Brexit is that if I remember correctly, so it wasn't, I think, the last... No, it wasn't the last March, but in June, you know, when there was a big People's mm. Vote March, Joe's kids were on there. And also, obviously, he is married to Amelia Gentleman, the Guardian journalist who did all the Windrush coverage. So I wonder, basically, mm. that that resignation partly didn't happen just because he was like, look, I just want to have a nice, quiet time at dinner. <laughs> like, Mm-mm. I do not want to get owned by my wife and children at all times. Like, I will just go with them on that.
2: But isn't this is what depresses me about the state of British politics. It feels like... So much of like the major issues of our time are decided by who doesn't want an awkward family Christmas. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, I mean, it's quite a concentration of power and privilege when the husband is an MP and the wife is a journalist because his brother started Brexit and his sister has been writing about it in the Telegraph and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) It's like a really rubbish episode of Game of Thrones, where instead of <laughs> With co- hopefully no incest, <laughs> I mean, who knows? I, I just think this is not what it, he's been called a hero, just because he did one. He stood up for one thing and now suddenly it's like, welcome to the resistance, Joe Johnson. And I just think it's a bit depressing. If Spider-Man was a story about a guy who destroyed 99% of the universe but then took a noble stand about not destroying the last percent, I probably wouldn't have had a crush on Tobey Maguire growing up. Which I accept is my own issue because (laughs) he's my cousin,
4: but still... (laughs)
2: I mean, Joe Johnson, he has never rebelled against his party in the current Parliament. He's voted against mansion tax, more restrictions on trade unions, for the reduction of capital gains taxed. Yet he's been called a hero from walking away from the steaming dumpster fire of shit that is Brexit. Now, for me, walking coolly away from a car crash doesn't make you Will Smith from Bad Boys, Joe. No. When you are the one instrumental in causing it, what you're doing is leaving the scene of an accident and that is a crime.
3: I actually, you know what, I I feel like my role in this episode is like the Joe Johnson defender has logged on, which is not the case. I actually have no strong feelings either way about Joe Johnson. But what I will say is that I do think that actually, if an MP is a minister, a junior minister, or even a parliamentary private secretary, they do have to vote for the government. You know, that comes with the job. They do have to vote for the government. And if they rebel on a piece of legislation, they have to resign. Like, there are compromises to be made. And I think, you know, that does not mean that, you know, um, I approve of their decisions or anything, but I do think that, you know, that makes the situa- situation different. But also it is the fact that, you know, the Joe Johnson resignation made massive waves for, like, you know, all kind of like corners of the Conservative Party and Parliament in general. That would not have happened if he were the sort, like, if he had been the sort of person who rebels about everything. So when you look at MPs like, I don't know, like on the Conservative benches, so Sarah Wollstone, Heidi Allen, etc. Whenever they vote against their party, you abstain on stuff now. Like it's not news anymore. No one cares. Like no one cares at all because they always do it. And so I do I can see the reasoning actually in picking your battles and I kinda of like picking your hill to die on, because otherwise people just not care.
2: But the reasons he resigned surely were the reasons that were true. Back in 2016, he didn't resign then. Back in June 2018, he didn't resign then. He did nothing. At least David, ghost of an 18th century Earl who died of Guy Davis, had the dignity to resign. As soon as the Chequers deal was done, he was like, this is not going to work. And it feels like he's he's been quite cynical in resigning at this moment because he knew the nearer it got to Brexit actually going through, it wouldn't get much publicity. So it was almost doing it for airtime rather than for political reasons.
3: The argument goes that basically Checker's was meant to be a negotiating position at the start of something effectively saying, you no, know, this is kind of what we want, but we can, you know, we, we we can discuss it, you know, more will happen. So I think that, yeah, A, people who resigned at that time clearly showed they had, you know, no faith in Theresa May. Don't blame them. Because <laughs> 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 you know, who does really? Mm. But I think, yeah, but there's Jerry a of... Halliwell <laughs> does. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, that there's an argument in saying actually at the time, you know, let's wait and see. Let's see actually what happens to checkers. What will checkers that checkers actually become on the long run? And then obviously I think that and as we saw today, apparently, you know, a deal has potentially finally been agreed. So it was coming to that point where like, presumably the front bench, like the government, knew that a deal was about to be made and actually so they had quite a good idea of what the deal was going to be like. So I kind of feel that like if you were going to resign... That was not the worst moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but also again, I can see what it looks like from the outside, because most people probably do not follow Brexit to that extent, and I am so jealous of them. <laughs> I am so envious.
2: I'm so envious of I've got friends who go, "Oh, I don't bother watching the news. It's too depressing. Oh, yeah. oh, that's isn't when it? I cry. <laughs>
3: Just start like weeping. <laughs> I'm really um, fun at parties. <laughs> invite me to your parties.
2: So Joe Johnson uh, released a statement giving his reasons for resigning and he also didn't at any point disavow his brother for the terrible role he played in the vote. If anything, in his resignation... Letter, Boris comes out of it rather well. He said, my brother Boris, who led the campaign, is as unhappy with the government's proposal as I am. Indeed, he recently observed that the proposed arrangements were substantially worse than staying in the EU. And he finishes by saying, they have at least united us in fraternal dismay. Do you not think, again, this feels just like the the Johnson family playing, basically, dress up with politics. They're putting on the clothing of honour, pretending to suddenly have a conscience, and really, it's just a fun game they're playing that will have no effect on their own lives because no matter what happens, they're going to be fine. I think we can safely say the entire Johnson family are messy bitches that live for drama. I mean, there's nothing that they won't get involved in. According to The Sun, that reputable sports and shouting magazine Boris Johnson is now suddenly leading the charge against fixed-term betting machines, which is an odd name for Theresa May, but there we are. You see, the <laughs> problem with all this is it's impossible to trust that Johnson is doing this for noble reasons, because he's not. He just didn't care about it until Tracy Couch resigned about it last week. And now suddenly he's the new poster boy against betting machines. Now, I don't think for a moment Boris Actually knows what they are. He probably thinks they're the machines he plays in pub toilets, and every time he plays them, he wins condoms.
3: <laughs> just what a what a dreadful mental image <laughs> that was. Just deeply unpleasant. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, God! It's almost like British politics would be better if it wasn't run by ev- people related to everybody. I agree. I agree. It is. Yeah, it is still super weird. I think that. Yeah, there's there are several sort of like brothers and sisters uh, mm-hmm. sitting on the green benches together. It's politics, guys, not Jedward. But anyway, enough about Jay Johnson. Now let's talk a bit about the never-ending crisis of universal credit and the rollout. So council tenants on universal credit have on average more than double the rent arrears of those still on housing benefits, according to a new BBC investigation. So according to a council in Fincher, rent arrears have gone up to £1 million, claimant has said they just have £29 a month to live on. The results from the 129 councils that responded showed the average amount owed by tenants claiming universal credit across the UK is £662.56. For those still on housing benefits, it is £262.50. Claimants has said that it is this delay in the payment combined with confusion over the online application process that has seen families left with no income for weeks forced to turn to food banks and choose between paying bills or paying their rent. And what is truly disturbing about the whole thing, this isn't a glitch in the system
2: that's causing this. Like this is what the system was designed for. The system was designed to replicate the payment system of employment. So one month payment in arrears, even though that's not how most of the people using the benefit would be used to being paid. So it just highlights how patronizing and out of touch the people who created it are. I'm not sure, but I think the next stage involves cutting payment until those people receiving it have learned to do, like, a morning page every day or eat their five fruit and vegetables and have hot takes on the books of Ian McEwan.
3: But also, I feel like Universal Credit has been a really, really striking example of the issue with Brexit and the fact that Brexit has swallowed up Mm -hmm. everything. Like, I genuinely think that it would have been, like, had it not been for Brexit, it would have been the issue, you know, day in day out talked about in Westminster pushed by labor relentlessly in the papers everyone you know like and and also you know even on the tory benches because i think several mp's um have major concerns about it as well like that i am certain that would have been the major issue in westminster for a long time and actually i think part of the reason why it's still going ahead is just because you know there's no there's no air for it like there's no there's no oxygen for that story to kind of run and run and also i think that the government is kind of like we cannot afford any more like losses anywhere. So you know, what we're already like the few things we're doing already, we're just going to press through with them when I think another government probably could have been that like, actually this might you know that this might be a defeat we can handle, like a defeat we can survive. Mm-hmm. And I think that yeah, again, because of Brexit they're just like nope, nope, not listening, just doing it, just doing whatever we can do.
2: So the universal credit scheme was the brainchild of Ian Duncan-Smith. It was originally developed as a possible idea by Gordon Brown's Labour government, but it was dismissed for being too complicated and expensive. I personally can't help feeling there's an element of, like, dicks on the table here. Do you know what I mean? Like, Ian Duncan-Smith was like, well, Labour couldn't do it, so I'm going to push this through. Even though... At every single stage, it's been too expensive. There's a whole problem with getting it the, the computer system crashing. Um, Ian Duncan Smith himself even resigned because he was so horrified by the effects of austerity on its implementation. So when Ian Duncan Smith says things have gone too far, I think it's a sobering moment. Like, have you seen him? The last time Ian Duncan Smith said things have gone too far was probably at a dogfight in a car park. It's just an utter disgrace that this kind of stuff is happening in 2018. There was an interview um, on Panorama with uh, a guy who owed £4,000 in rent. And when he spoke about how he was coping with this he said I can just easily see myself being evicted I'm looking for somewhere to live and I found a bridge where I can live this is a 63 year old man this is a guy looking for a place to live under a bridge because he doesn't have access to a computer so this feels like a glitch if this happened in The Sims you could say it was a programming mistake but it's not it's built into the design to make it as painful as possible for people or because they're poor.
3: So what I don't understand, you know, obviously having said all that about about Brexit and everything, mm-hmm. is that I do actually wonder why Labour is not going in a lot mm-hmm. harder on this. Like It is one of those issues where, you know, I can't even remember, literally, because I remember Debbie Abrahams used to be the shadow DWP mm-hmm. secretary. And then she left and then someone else came in. She could not even tell you who it is. Um, and and, And it feels to me like such a weird thing, especially for someone like Jeremy Corbyn, who does care, you know, and obviously, like, he has many faults, we all do, but I also, you know, does seem to genuinely care about, you know, kind of, like, people in need. And yes, I don't really understand why Labour is not... Because those stories are absolutely sort of heartbreaking. And so I don't really understand why, well, yeah, they're not doing more on that. But maybe, yeah, maybe it is just Brexit kind of swallowing everything mm-hmm. up.
2: The person in charge of is Esther McVeigh. You maybe remember her from the person who had to admit to misleading Parliament and still didn't have to resign. So uh, we know the most vulnerable people in the country are in safe hands. Speaking of bad boys, I don't think we are. <laughs> um The taxpayers' alliance have had to admit to wrongdoing. So, you know, they must really have fucked up bad time. Uh, It's like a serial killer saying, oh boy, actually, yeah, that last one did make me feel a little bit queasy.
3: I do feel like the taxpayer alliance really proved the fact that, you know, like there are some truths in life. And I think that one of them is that if anyone ever starts a sentence with, as a taxpayer, you know, it's not going to go well. (laughs) It's up there with
2: speaking as a mother. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So the alliance have accepted... All the allegations Shamir Sani has made during his action claiming unfair dismissal, wrongful dismissal, direct discrimination and dismissal by reason of a philosophical belief in the sanctity of British democracy. So I'm, yeah, I'm starting to think that maybe the Taxpayers' Alliance might be a bunch of wrong <laughs> OK, so I'm an idiot. Whenever I saw the Taxpayers' Alliance on TV, sure, they always made my heart sink because I knew whatever debate they were involved in, the budget, the environment, the ending to the last episode of The Sopranos, the answer would always be lower taxes, and I thought, God, they're annoying. But I thought they were like a research group, like a think tank. I thought they, you know, they had little researchers beavering away, coming up with findings and then releasing them free of charge to the public. I thought, what generous people. I don't agree with them, but I thought they were experts on what they were talking about. But then I realised this only this week that the Taxpayers Alliance is not a think tank. They're not a research group. They are what I am to theories on how well Megan and Kate Middleton actually get on. Sure, I shout about it a lot, but I have an absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. Because they're not a think tank, are they? They're just a lobby group.
3: Oh, yeah, no, they're effectively just a campaigning group, yeah, yeah. But they, they
2: get interviewed all the time like they're this objective voice of...
3: But Common isn't it? Sense. But I feel like I feel like that's a wider problem with kind of like how TV news is made. With us, so much basically any sort of panel on you know like any busy major channel about politics, it is always you know this thing has happened. Here is one person to say that it is good, and one person to say that it is bad, and it's kind of just that. And I feel like any there's something to do with taxes, it's like, and now the Taxpayers Alliance will say very predictable thing and then and that's kind of always that and so I think that's kind of also how they gain Italians by just kind of being there and being like yeah I think you will find that we think tax is bad and it's like thank you now back to the studio <laughs> mm, 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 mm. they sound confident and they speak very loudly <laughs> as a side note can I just say that do you remember who originally broke this story about believe and vote leave it was Marie Lacan. It was me. Sorry. I don't really do scoops anymore, so I feel like a grandmother being like, In my day, I used to do things. But uh, anyway, carry on. Carry on. I went to the showgirl once. Oh. I was in all the movies. In all
5: the boys.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We get it. You're a journalist, Marie. <laughs> Sorry. Got Lois Lane in the studio. <laughs> anyway. Interesting enough, speaking of Vote Leave, that brings us back to Northern Ireland.
3: Ah, (laughs) I'll just do that. Next time I will bring, like, a trumpet, I think. (laughs) Some kind of instrument. But it's really
2: Ah, important that (laughs) there's been ah, meant. Fine, we will talk about it next week.
3: Now, Grunier, was this about not deleting Uber to help the gig economy? OK, admittedly, that's a weird way of putting it. First, let's look at how terrible
2: the gig economy is.
3: I mean, here is the thing, right, isn't it? Because I feel like we're both, we're both freelance and self-employed and I think that, you know, it is such a pain, the fact that obviously, you know, I don't have paid holidays, I don't have sick days. People never, ever pay me on time. Like, literally, mm-hmm. I think one person to paid me after two weeks instead of, like, four months and mm-hmm. I jumped in the air. And I, it is, you know, so I can't even imagine what it's like for people in even more sort of, like, precarious situations.
2: It's I, as a comedian, <laughs> I'm also uh, self-employed and... Sometimes I feel like people treat self-employed people like our jobs are just like these fun hobbies we do on the side. <laughs> like so many jobs I do, I have to pay money up front. Like I to pay for trains to get to gigs or... Um, or I have to pay to get headshots done, or there's loads of things I need to pay, and I always have to pay straight away. Mm. I can't say to the train company, I'll mm. pay you in eight months' time. But then there's so many jobs. It takes so long to pay. You have to hassle and hassle and hassle.
3: Which also takes time. I and mean, I feel like you can't mm. focus. Like, I've had that before, like when you have to spend like an hour of your day to just like email everyone to be like, hi, but also like the nicest possible way, because you don't want to like alienate them because mm. they might give you more work. So just like, hey. Hi, hiya, mm-hmm. hi babe, hi pal. Just wondering, you know. Hope you're having a lovely day. Like, you know, don't want to trouble you, but like, you're meant to pay me. You know, just, just wondering if maybe you had it. I'm, and it, and it is, yeah, and it's so, you know, and then it gets so hard to actually focus on the stuff you're meant to do. Mm.
2: And, you know, there are benefits to being self-employed. You know, you get to decide your own hours. But then there's this also this added level of precariousness. You can't plan anything in advance ever. You can't plan holidays. You never know what you're doing one week to another. I always kind of have a vague idea. Oh, I'll worry about January's rent. Why would I think about January's rent? It's only (laughs) November. The universe will provide. And obviously, if there's a choice, we've chosen these careers. So we've only ourselves to blame. But it must be so much harder for people in zero hour contract who aren't pursuing their vocation, who are just stuck relying on people. You're just relying on people's words that they will pay you.
3: But like you did specifically mention Uber and they will you know, they're all really bad. Like It is kind of like a terrible company that doesn't even technically have workers. You're right. In fact, we spoke to James Farrer and Yassim Aslam
2: of the United Private Hire Drivers branch of the IWGB union.
5: My name is James Farrer. I'm chair and co-founder of United Private Hire Drivers branch of the IWGB union. Myself and Yassin are the two co-lead claimants in this case against Uber. And we both had different paths into this. Mine was I was drinking the gig economy Kool Aid. I was going to start up my own business, and I was going to drive at night to keep keep the wool from the door. And everything was going fine until one night I was assaulted on the job, and it was a tricky situation. Uh, I went to the police. I had to make a report. I needed to do that for my own sake because if you're you know you're a licensed driver and something like this happens, you you need to get the facts established or else you could be uh, accused of something, if nothing else. And that's why that's why I was keen to report it. And the police were like, okay, that's great. Please um, tell us who the passenger is. And I said, well, I don't know who it is. <laughs> and uh, I asked Uber and they said, um, well, we can't tell you. Um, the police will have to ask us. And so the police did. Um, but for 10 weeks, Uber tried to avoid and evade disclosing to the police who the passenger was demanding court orders, all sorts of nonsense. Um, And that caused me to look at the contract and see, well, what's going on here? And then I realized, aha, um, Uber's offloaded all the risk onto me and to the consumer It wants to stand back as an agent and so it has no incentive either to help me or to help the passenger um, at all. So um, we started talking to a lawyer and what's the solution? What is the duty of care? Uh, What is the responsibility here? And that's where we realized that there is a worker status and that brings certain protections and um, we're pursuing it. But Yassine's got a slightly different story. Yassine's been organizing for much longer than I have.
4: Hello everyone, uh, my name is Yasin Azlam, General Secretary for United Private Hire Drivers. i actually been in this trade where I actually become a minicab driver in 2006, that's well before Uber. Uber came into London 2012, so I was one of the early drivers to start working with them. It was in 2014 when I actually actively started campaigning for Uber drivers. And a lot of it at the time was to do with drivers getting deactivated unfairly, getting assaulted and also uh, later on where Uber started reducing the fares and that's when we first started campaigning.
5: Um, (coughs) So right now we're at the um, Court of Appeal, Um, so we've won twice. We've won at the Employment Tribunal, we've won again at the Employment Appeals Tribunal. Now we're at the Court of Appeal because Uber keeps appealing it. Uh, I, I don't think they have a case to make here. But often what you see in the gig economy is a lot of strategic litigation. They know it's going to take us five to seven years to get to the Supreme Court. In the meantime, there's no remedy. Everything is suspended. They don't have to do anything until they've exhausted their appeals. That's not much of a remedy for somebody just trying to earn the minimum wage, seven years and millions of pounds in legal fees. Um, but meanwhile, they're going to be lobbying hard to get the law changed anyway. Uh, so that's the strategy. And if you're a, you know, a network business like Uber, a fast startup, seven years is a, an eternity that allows you to... Grow your business, establish yourself, get your feet under the table. Uh, There's no remedy at all for us. But we're still fighting. Um, we're waiting for a decision from the Court of Appeal. And um, maybe Uber will accept it. Uh, uh, and maybe we'll be uh, f- facing further appeals.
3: But also the thing is, like that happens the other way around as well. Like There was a horrible story um, a few years ago. So a friend of mine got sexually assaulted by a cab driver in an Uber and basically, Uber. Like I can not remember the exact details of that entire story, but basically, every single stage of it, Uber was exactly as unhelpful as they could possibly be. And I think it was that thing, like especially watching it because it's quite a close friend of mine. It was not just the kind of like trauma of the assault itself, but the fact that you know they were so unhelpful. She had to relive that, you know, day after day after day, just fighting Uber to basically kind of you know try t- try and make something happen. So it is definitely something I think they're really bad at on both sides. I just don't
2: understand why they have to make everything so unnecessarily difficult because the majority of people who work for Uber work really hard, work really, really long hours.
5: In terms of license fees um, to transport for London, for every car and driver per year, Uber pays £13. For every car and driver for a driver, £250. That's an unfair burden. And yet the the, the profit split is about 50-50 between driver and Uber. That's completely unfair, and that represents a transfer of from, from the poorest to the wealthiest. That needs to change. That's the context. That's precarity. And as the precariousness increases, what happens is drivers are coming into the industry with their own vehicles. They wear them out faster than they can amortize them. Then they're thrown on the rental market, firstly with a quarterly uh, lease. Then you can't afford that. That's week by week. And then, voila, you have an accident. You lose your, your deposit, and, and you're stuffed. This is the types of precariousness that's creeping in, and and, and prices are being driven down because these big companies, uh, they don't mind how low the price goes because right now they just want to grab market share, and they're driving, driving earnings through the floor. Average minicab driver breaks even at uh, 35 hours a week. In the Addison Lee tribunal, the judge noted that it takes an, uh, an Addison Lee driver between 25 and 30 hours a week just to pay for the rent on the vehicle to Addison Lee. That's before you fuel it or do any any other operating costs. Um, so that's the reality. You've got to work 90 hours to earn. Most most minicab drivers, Addison Lee, Uber, it's £5 an hour job and hugely precarious. That's precarious to me, the risk and the low wages.
2: So what can we do? Well, admittedly, it's largely above our pay grade. So you could write to Sadiq Khan. As mayor of London, he could do what New York did.
5: What we have to understand here is that this level of exploitation that's going on is going on in a regulated trade, in a highly regulated trade. We're all licensed um, by the mayor of London, um, and yet the mayor has done next to nothing to protect us. There were some golden opportunities as Uber was being relicensed under condition to apply those conditions. The mayor denies he has the powers to set a minimum wage, Uh, Floor uh, for minicab drivers, but Frank Field MP says he does. So we need for the mayor to write a legal opinion that we can all look at as to why he cannot act and has not acted on 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 this. If you compare this to New York, in New York they've set a floor for $15 an hour plus uh, 225 for holiday pay, and they've put a cap on the number of vehicles in the city. They've acted in New York. Uh, I know in London this debate around powers and so on, but we get we end up with this sort of finger pointing between central government and local government, and meanwhile nobody's doing anything.
3: Well, this is all well and good, Gronia, but you said that you hadn't deleted Uber, and it sounds like you should because they're shocking. Ah, uh, yes, but there's two things to remember.
5: There's been a lot of talk about banning Uber. We're not in favour of that because until you fix the underlying problem... Uber exits and somebody else comes in. Um, so we don't solve any problems. In fact, if anything, you make the situation more precarious for vulnerable workers. Uh, for example, when the mayor uh, took Uber's license last year, I, I noticed that the TUC said it was a victory for worker rights. But we had 40,000 people looking at being out of work and being saddled with the lease. Uh, you know, We were brought into this situation by the government, by others, and, and we all need to work through this and having the right regulatory framework is is important. Now, also, I think it's unfair to pass this over as an ethical consumerist issue because a lot of people who use these services are precarious workers themselves. And we can't ask people who can barely afford to travel to choose a more expensive option. That's not the answer. That's regulation.
4: I think it's very important to understand that we're not anti-Uber, we're not against technology. What we need is, uh, we can't have companies like Uber coming into the market uh, exploiting workers. Uh, we live in the UK and there are employment laws that protect us. And that's what we're fighting for, the workers' status. And, and that's what we want the law to be obeyed, making sure our workers ain't being exploited on the streets of London.
5: I would make one exception, and that is corporate travel use. So we have a case running now with um, representing Addison Lee drivers uh, up at Luton. And when we see companies like Deutsche Bank, KPMG, Credit Suisse, who have clear procurement policy saying that they will respect collective bargaining rights within their supply chain and they expect their vendors to pay living wages. That's very clear. That's written by Deutsche Bank. And yet when we go to them and say... You need to enforce that in your contract with Addison Lee. They deny responsibility. So I I would say the only exception I would make is for corporate travel use. The banker can afford to pay more than £5 to get home at 10 o'clock at night, and and they should should pay properly.
2: And it's not as if the alternatives are better.
5: Now the industry has transformed, but look who's involved. Big Tech, Uber, uh, Lyft. These companies are moving into the market, bringing technology with them. But not only that, big energy. Shell has come into the market, has got itself an operator's license in London, a company called Fairpilot. They're entering the market. Daimler has got an investment in um, the apps MyTaxi, ViaVan, Taxify, Blacklane, all of them operating in London. Volkswagen are invested in Get. Renault Nissan are involved in um, iCabby, which is a technology, uh, as well as... um, as a price comparison consolidator. So what we're seeing in this context is you've got big energy, big auto, big tech coming together. But at the pinnacle of this is a group of very precarious workers who've been really exploited.
2: So, yeah, maybe Uber are arseholes, but we can't really ask people to deliberately take more expensive travel. Now, don't get me wrong, I hate Uber's owners and what they represent. So instead, I'm signing petitions against them And I'm writing to Sadiq Khan. But in the meantime, I don't want to deny
3: precarious workers their income. That's it for this week. For more information on how you can get involved, please visit our website, changingpolitics.org. And you can find us on Twitter at Changing Polypod and Facebook at Changing Bye. Bye.